Um, I don't know if you have the uh, overview of the, um, the uh, I think it might be helpful as a map. There's just a lot of content that I'm going to go through, and it's not easy to keep it in your minds. So um, I'd like, while Daniel's given that out, to just have you, each one of you, if you're willing, to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. What I want to do uh, today, my, my purpose in the couple hours I'm going to be with you, uh, two sessions, is to give you an overview or a map to some degree of sanctification, of Christ-likeness and maturity. Uh, some time ago I was meditating on the Great Commission and thinking about how Jesus commissioned us, commissioned the church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then comes this statement, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now when you think of the words that he gives us there, especially the word everything, the more you meditate on that and you realize that Jesus really is not just speaking about his own commandments that he gives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, etc., but all of the commands that he gave uh, through the Old Testament prophets that testified about him or, or on his behalf, and then through the apostles, all of Scripture, all of the commands that press on our consciences as Christians, that's included. And you start thinking about that and think, how much is there? And uh, I meditated on these things for five, six, seven years as I was trying to synthesize all of the things that Christ expects us to be and do as Christians. And that chart that you have there is the effort that I have uh, of synthesizing that into some topics and some headings so that you can focus on these things for prayer and for growth. Now, for me, I'm an engineer. I guess a number of you uh, have an engineering background. Some don't. You know, there's just the, the right brain and left brain. You've got kind of liberal arts side, and then you've got that more technical, mathematical engineering side. I tend to lean that way. I tend to kind of engineer my sermons, et cetera. That's the product of that kind of organization. If you're more of a, I don't know, what is it, right brain or what, left brain? I'm, not, I'm never sure which side. Uh, if you like more poetry or more you know, writing, I'm sorry, all right? But if you can just bear with this kind of tightly structured, logical organization, it may help even you. Others would be like flourishing in this. You love this kind of thing, etc. But I want to begin from Philippians chapter 1, and my desire is to set before you from just this chapter of Philippians. I could start in a lot of places. But in Philippians chapter 1, answering the question, you know, what has God left us in this world to do? Why are we here? And we could ask that in a big, big picture, you know, why did God create us to begin with? Or uh, more specifically, now that we are Christians, now that we've come to faith in Christ, what are we left on earth here to do? So I'm going to focus more on that. First and foremost, we know that we were created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 makes it very plain that God created us for his own glory. He makes that plain. The question is, now that we have come to faith in Christ, you know how they came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and said, what must we do to work the works of God? And they being, as I perceive in that text, in an unconverted state, Jesus made it very plain. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. So if you're unconverted, if you have yet to come to faith in Christ, there's only one thing for you to do, and that is to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Nothing, there's nothing else laid on you. No other works that you ever could do would be acceptable to God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And so none of our works are counted as righteous before conversion. But since I believe you know, we're speaking today as Christian men, the question is, now that we've come to faith in Christ, we've done that central work that must be done, what now? 
And I think Philippians 1 kind of in a very beautiful way organizes that for me. If you would look uh, at just in the middle of the chapter, uh, in I think around verse 19, and 19 through 21, would somebody read Philippians 1, 19 through 21? I think that's a good place to begin. I, I didn't look at, uh, at the seams there, but if someone could read Philippians 1, 19 through 21. So I'm going to zero in on verse 20 as a good answer to the question. Why has God left me here on earth? Now that I've come to faith in Christ, I'm born again. I'm definitely going to heaven when I die. Why am I still alive? Why am I still here in this world? Verse 20, I think, says it very well. Paul says it on our behalf. God left us here in this world that Christ would be exalted in our bodies, whether by life or by death. I think that's a good way to answer the question. It's just another way of saying the same thing. We are here to glorify God or to glorify Christ. That's why we're here. But the question is how? How can we best do that? And I think the same, the same chapter, Philippians 1, gives us an answer to that in two different verses. At the beginning of this section, in verse 12, somebody, if you would, read Philippians 1.12. I'm going to talk about that. Philippians 1.12. Okay, so answer number one. I believe that we are here to glorify Christ in our bodies by, verse 12, advancing the gospel. Then later in the chapter, we have verse 25. If somebody could read that for us, verse 25. All right, now what Paul's doing there in Philippians 1.12, he's talking about the good effects of his incarceration. He's been arrested for the gospel and he wants the Philippian church to know that there have been some amazingly good effects of his having been arrested. He actually says that my arrest has really served to advance the gospel. Do you see that in verse 12? But then as the chapter unfolds, he's starting to wrestle with his own fate. What's going to happen to him? He doesn't actually know. He might live or he might die. He might be released or he might be executed. You really never know. And for himself, he says, Either way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a marvelous statement in verse 21 and bears a lot of meditation. I mean, if you think about it, he's saying for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, or we could say something better. That's what the word gain means. But since the first part is to live is Christ, what could be better than that? So the only way you can really harmonize that in a respectful, honoring way to Christ is to say for me to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. It's better for me by far to depart and be with Christ and see him face to face and be freed of my sin nature and to, and to just bask in the glory of face to face fellowship with Christ. That's better by far for me. But for you, Philippians, and for all of the churches I planted and for all the people that I'm seeking to shepherd and whatever for you, it's better for you if I continue in the body. He's not being arrogant there. He's just saying there's benefit to all of you of my spiritual gifts in the ministry I do. And I actually think that's what's going to happen. I think I'm actually going to, I'm going to survive this one. I'm not going to be executed. Second Timothy's absolutely certain the time has come for his departure. But there in Philippians, he thinks he's going to continue. And for what reason? He says in verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, what's interesting in the Greek, in the original language, in verse 12 and in verse 25, we have the same Greek word. I'm not going to pronounce it. It doesn't matter. But the word is translated progress or advance. If you look again at verse 12, you'll see it. I'm here for the progress of the gospel. See? In verse 25, he's saying, I'm here for your progress in the gospel. Those two things are related but different. What do you think it means that Paul's there for the progress of the gospel? What does that mean to you? The progress of the gospel. 
Spread of the gospel. What would we call that? The sp- evangelism. I would make a distinction between evangelism and missions. They're related but different. Evangelism is the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ to lost people in your own language and culture. Missions is the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people in, in, in people of different language and culture. Generally, you have to get on a plane to do it, but more and more, those kinds of people are coming right to our region. We're, we're trying to plant a church among the Gujarati people of India right here in Morrisville. And so there, there's opportunities, but that's the way I make a distinction. But either way, that's what I call in my book the external journey, the spread of the gospel. We are here to magnify Christ, to glorify Christ by advancing the gospel, sharing the gospel with lost people. But now in verse 25, we have the same Greek word progress. He says, I'm here for your progress in the faith. Not the progress of the faith or of the gospel, but your progress in the faith. What does that mean? Sanctification, discipleship, Christian growth. You see that? They're already Christians. Philippians have already made a profession of faith in Christ. They're a church. They're believers. This is the uh, final phase of that great commission. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Not just to know everything I've commanded, said Jesus, but to obey it. That their lives would be brought in conformity with my word. That, I believe, is progress in the faith. Now, the words progress, to me, imply a journey. You're, you're making progress. You're going from point A to point B to C to D, etc. There's a, a journey to be traveled. You can't stay put. We, it's not okay where it's at with the gospel. It's not okay. We're not just there in the upper room celebrating that all of us, 120 believers, we all know Jesus and, and we're all so happy and now we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and we stay in the upper room and we just love on each other and we're so happy. No, there's thousands of people out in the streets of Jerusalem that need to be converted. And it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it's still not done yet. It's not okay where it's at with the spread of the gospel. We're not okay with the fact that billions of people have never heard the name of Jesus. That's not okay. And so we're here for that. We should care about it. It should be a a burning passion in our hearts. We're surrounded here in this area. What we would formally call the Bible Belt. We're surrounded by lostness. We're surrounded by unconverted people. That's not okay. And we should be pressed in our hearts and be eager and, and and yearning to see the spread of the gospel. But that's not all there is. There's also progress in the gospel. And the Lord means for us to become more and more conformed to His own image and nature. That we become more and more conformed to Christ. So spiritual maturity, I think a better word for us, for our study this morning is Christ-likeness. To be conformed to Christ in every way. So we have there in Philippians 1 a kind of a comprehensive, you know what to look for. Why am I here? I'm here that Christ will be magnified or glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. And how can that be, Paul? By making progress in these two interconnected journeys. The external journey of gospel spread and the internal journey of progress in the gospel. Now what I want to say to you is that every good church, every good church, seeks to make progress in both. Every healthy church is seeking to make progress in both. They are there to be a light in a dark place. They're equipping their their members 
to share the gospel in the workplace, in their neighborhoods, with relatives, lost relatives. They're equipping their people to share the gospel. They care about missions and evangelism. They're involved. Every good church does that. Every good church also is discipling and training the members of that church as you are here today for that purpose to grow in Christ-likeness. And you're not settled or, or accepting your level of spiritual maturity or sanctification. You want to make progress. You want to be more like Christ five years from now if the Lord lets you live five years from now than you are right now. You care about that and you know it's not okay your level of immaturity or it's not okay the level that sin has taken root in your life. You want it out. You want to kill it. You want to make progress. And we can't just be satisfied. To stop making progress inevitably involves regression, sliding back. So we have to continue to move. Now, what I've also noted is every good church is to some degree imbalanced toward one or the other. Bad churches do neither one. They're dead. They're on their way out. The Lord's going to remove their lampstand. There's nothing going on there. We're surrounded by those dying husks of churches where people still come. There's one right up the street that they sold it to a... uh, they sold their building to a, 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 a school. And now they've got the school's name at the front and then this, the name of the former church. And they still meet on Sunday mornings, but they, long time ago, were dying. They, it just has, I know specifically what went on in that church. They didn't want any new members anymore. They had a very evangelistic pastor that came in. People were coming in. They didn't want those new people in the church because they'd lose political power in the church. It was, it's shameful. Now they're dead. And that happens all the time. It goes on. But so... Bad churches, dying churches do neither one. Good churches do both, but inevitably somewhat imbalanced. Kind of like when your front end needs alignment, right? And you're pulling to the left or to the right. You know what I'm saying? There's an imbalance. And it's it's for the elders, the leaders of the church to find out how you're imbalanced and to compensate. A lot of times it just tends to the personality and the gifting of the pastors themselves. And they tend to be more leaning toward, let's say, book learning or more leaning toward an external evangelistic side and tend to, to limit uh, discipleship or care for souls, etc. But you just need to know where you're eccentric, where you're leaning and say, oh, Lord, give us balance. I would advocate true health comes in a perfect, beautiful balance between these two and an acceleration along these journeys, not favoring either one. And so it is also for each individual Christian. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? Put it plainly, you will be glorifying to God as you embrace each of you the external journey of winning lost people in your life and caring about missions together with looking after your own soul's progress toward Christlikeness for the rest of your life. Now, the word infinite just comes from my MIT geeky mechanical engineering background. Some have challenged it. I do not say by choosing this word that we will never reach the destination. To some degree, I wonder about that because I believe that even in heaven we'll be learning and growing and developing. Not in terms of putting sin to death, but just learning more about Christ's glory. We're never going to be God. We're never going to be omniscient. There's always going to be more to learn. We just won't forget in heaven, praise God. But there'll be just more and more and more to learn. I think in Isaiah 9 it says of the increase of of his kingdom there will be no end. And so I, I would actually say I wonder if, if we'll ever reach the end, but I do believe there's a finite number of elect people that are going to be converted and they will be converted, all of them. And so to some degree, I'm not saying we're not going to meet it. I'm just saying while you live before the second coming of Christ, there's still going to be work to be done on both of them. You're never going to be able to say, hey, I have reached, I have achieved, I have attained. I don't need to get any more in either one of these, etc. All right, any questions about that? That's just setting the table for what we're going to look at today. 
All right, well, let's move on. What I want to focus on now is the internal journey. When I say internal, I mean internal to you as a human being, something inside your own heart. The word internal and external could also have to do with the local church. Internal then means something a little bit different, but it just has to do with the ministry given to members of that church. And external would be the ministry done to a people outside, to lost people, etc. You could do that, uh, etc. But for me, I'm just talking about you as an individual. We're going to zero in on your own heart's growth in Christ. And what I want to try to give you in, in the book Infinite Journey is a roadmap of focus for prayer, uh, for discipleship, for one-on-one discipleship, men with men and women with women, parents with their kids growing up. <clears throat> and I'm seeking to answer this question, what is spiritual maturity? What does it look like? What are the component parts of it? And so I break it into this kind of main this this chart, uh, what I call a pathway to Christian maturity, and I'm going to argue that Christian maturity could be broken into four main headings, knowledge, faith, character, and action. And that we uh, grow in Christ in a balanced sort of way. We're not going to pick and choose our favorite of those four and be real action people and not really care about what we know or what we believe or what we love in our hearts. Neither are we going to zero in on the internal side, the loving aspect, and not worry how we live. No, we're seeking to have balanced growth in all four areas. And I'm going to define each of them, what I mean by them. But then I'm going to kind of, that's like a snapshot, like a strobe photo of it. A spiritually mature man or woman has achieved maturity in these areas. It's never, never done growing, but... That's what it is, to be fully trained in a mature disciple of Christ. But I'm also going to argue that it's dynamic, that this is actually how we grow. Knowledge feeds faith. Knowledge and faith together transform character or heart. Out of that transformed character or heart, you will live a godly life. So to me, that's what sanctification is all about. And it starts with the ministry of the word. So that's what we're looking at. Now, what I want to do is go over this roadmap and just talk through it. And, uh, you know, we don't have a, a, a lot of time together. Uh, there's, I, I condense this book that's it's for sale at the back. I brought it uh, for you guys. Tom urged me to do it. I can't stand that thing because it's like I'm peddling. But the book is a resource. It's sold for $10, much less than its cover price, etc. I'd just like to give it to you, uh, you know, for your, uh, if you want. Uh, or you can order it from Amazon for a lot more money and give them some of your money, I guess. I don't know how all that works. But um, there's a lot to talk about. There's more than we could do in several weeks of study. What I did is I took that longish book and condensed it to something shorter, um, Infinite Journey, a bridge version. I think you're going to get a, a PDF copy. I sent it out. So you're going to get a good outline of all this. And I think it would be good study one-on-one uh, -on -one or in small groups going forward if you'd like. Um, but we're just going to have to go real fast this morning and give you a, a sampling of what's there. So let me talk through the chart. Let's first talk about knowledge. What do I mean by knowledge? Well, I'm going to break knowledge into two subcategories, factual and experiential, spiritual information. Here I'm going to make a distinction between knowledge in terms of factual knowledge about the Bible, just knowing what the Bible teaches, an intimate, relational, covenantal knowledge that Jesus defines as eternal life. In John 17, 3, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I'm saying this knowledge here is a lower level than that. 
It's more like that covenantal union between a man and a wife. You know how it says in the King James Version, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And so the Hebrew just uses the word know as a kind of a euphemism for marital relations. But we know that that is a mysterious picture of Christ in the church in some marvelous way. So what we talk about there is this high level of intimate covenantal relationship between a soul, an individual, and God. I'm saying this is lower than that, but it's related to it. Like a husband and wife know things about each other. At the beginning of their relationship, they began to exchange knowledge about each other. Tell me who you are. Where are you? What's your name? You know, where are you from? Tell me about yourself. And so that begins the relationship, the passing on of knowledge. So in effect, here I'm just saying the soul is saying to Christ or to, to God, who are you? What can I know about you? And the Bible is clearly the source of that information. Obviously, nature is as well, but the Bible is the clearest source of factual information about God and his purposes in the world. Secondly, there is experiential learning. So there's, I think in discipleship, we could break discipleship into two patterns. And I can go into a lot of detail about this, but there are patterns of discipleship by which souls are conformed to Christ, forced to Christ. The Greek word tupos is like how a coin is struck. And so we're smushed into a mold and made to be like Jesus. There are two different tuposes or patterns of discipleship. There's book learning and life learning. 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul talks about the pattern of sound doctrine. Philippians 3.16, uh, I think it is, talks about the pattern of lifestyle or imitation. Disciples then, discipling, has to do with a combination of book learning and life learning. So a discipler says to his disciples, let's get together, let's study the Bible and good Christian books, and let's fill our minds with good spiritual information, Plus, let's go out and live what we're learning. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's just good discipleship. Not the one or the other, but both together. So then experiential uh, learning comes from life. It just comes from living. Some of you older men, you've been through some things that give you a heart of wisdom. You've been through suffering. You've been through years of experience. And there's just some things that just can't be learned from a book. You can learn about them in, in the Bible, but you have to live through them. Suffering's a very good example. Suffering's a great teacher. You can't learn it in a book. You just have to go through it. So there is factual knowledge and there's experiential life learning or life knowledge. That's the first box, knowledge. Secondly, there is the box of faith. The way I define that is faith is of assurance of and commitment to invisible spiritual realities or spiritual truths. Faith has to do with the invisible realms. I would define faith as the eyesight of the soul. By faith, we see invisible spiritual things. Without faith, we are spiritually blind. It is when we come to faith in Christ that our eyes are open and we see. Jesus directly links it to sight in John 9. Remember that man that was born blind? And Jesus heals his physical eyes so he can see, and then he likens it to his saving work in the world. He says, for judgment I have come into the world so that those who are blind may be able to see, and those who see may become blind. He's clearly talking spiritual. <clears throat> so I believe that <clears throat> faith is the eyesight of the soul. Now what do we see when we look into the invisible spiritual realms? That's what I'm asking. So a sub-point then is certainty 
that invisible spiritual realities are true. We, by faith, believe that what the Bible says about the past, present, and future invisible spiritual realities is definitely true. That would make us different than somebody like Bart Ehrman over at Chapel Hill that knows the Bible factually probably better than me, but doesn't believe any of it's true. Now, we believe that the things the Bible says about the past are most certainly true. So we believe all that history of the Jewish nation, the Red Sea crossing, all of those things. We, we take in history. The history is incredibly important to the Christian faith. I would say Christi- history is more important to Christianity than to any religion in the world. It really does make a difference whether Christ has been raised from the dead or not. If it's just a story, what does Paul say? If it never happened, what then? There's lots of, yeah, we are of all men to be pitied. I'm wasting my life, Paul would say. I should have stayed a ladder-climbing Pharisee. That There was good money in that. All right, I made a mistake. I get beaten in every city. What am I doing? But if there is a resurrection, now everything's different. And I have not wasted anything. And the Lord is going to <clears throat> reward me for what I've entrusted to Him for that day. So we believe in the past history, especially concerning Jesus. His birth from the Virgin Mary, his sinless life, his miracles, his atoning death. We actually think it happened just like it's written in the Bible and that he was physically raised from the dead on the third day. We really believe all that. And we believe things about the present world. We believe in God enthroned now, sovereignly ruling over this mess of political process we see in our country. Do you believe in that? That God is ruling over the presidential election in the United States of America. If you don't believe in that and you care about your country, you must be in despair. But if you do care about your country and you're Christian, you believe that God is enthroned and that the church has faced far worse governments than this and has thrived actually in it. And so we're trusting in Him while we try to figure out what our duty as Christian citizens is. It's not easy to do. But that's present. Not only God enthroned, but Christ at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit invisibly, powerfully, sovereignly active, doing mysterious things all over the world. We believe in all that. We can see it with our eyes because we know it's happening, right? But not only that, how about angels? You believe in angels? Believe that they're ministering spirits sent to serve those who are inheriting salvation? Do you believe in demons? Do you believe that we're at spiritual war? That you have a spiritual enemy? That you have to put on your spiritual armor every day and fight? And if you don't put on your spiritual armor, you're going to be a spiritual victim today. You're going to be wounded by flaming arrows if you don't lift up your shield of faith. You have a responsibility. Why? Because you believe in spiritual warfare. You believe in demons. That makes you weird at MIT, I can tell you right now, right? You believe in demons? Like, what do we believe in witches too? I mean, what else, what else are we going to say? Like, what are they, Middle Ages now? Yeah, I actually do believe in demons. <clears throat> but it's not just past and present, it's future. I believe in certain things that are definitely going to come in the future. Can't see it, but I believe in the second coming of Christ. I believe in the new heaven and the new earth. I believe in hell as an eternal, a place of eternal conscious torment for the, for the damned. I believe in that. Can't see it, but I believe in it. All right, so that's just the first of the bullets there you see that you're like how in the world are we going to get through this i don't know that we will brothers but <clears throat> we're going to do our best but you believe in those invisible spiritual realities then from hebrews 11 1 there's two parts the next two come from that faith is the assurance of things hoped for 
What does that mean? It means that you really believe that the good things God has promised in the future will certainly come true. You're a hope-filled person. More than mere optimism, you're a happy soul. You, do, you believe in the future. You're buoyant like a cork. And, and you just are confident all the time that the future is bright for you personally and for the world. You just believe in it. Believe God has good things planned for the future. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So we're filled with hope. By the assurance of things hoped for. Thirdly, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now, I really believe the word conviction should be related to like in a court of law. What does that mean? If somebody is convicted in a court of law, what does that mean? Found guilty. That's what the word means in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but it's also the found guilty and reproved and rebuked for sin of things not seen. Now, this is what I would argue. This is what the word means in the Greek. It's used every single time that way. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. Convict him. All right? Well, that happens to you too. <laughs> and so you get convicted. Ever heard somebody said that? Well, it was a very convicting sermon. What does somebody mean when they say that? It was very convicted. I was very convicted by that. What does that mean? If somebody's very convicted by a sermon, what are they saying? Found guilty. I'm not doing things the right way. Like you could hear a sermon on Christian marriage from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? And the more the, the pastor went on in very detailed saying what it means to be a Christ-like husband, the person feels more and more convicted. They've been neglecting their wife. They've not cherished their wives, etc. And they're convicted. Why? Because they're guilty. Now here's what I want to say. If you look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, you've got the assurance of things hoped for. It's just sweet, positive, buoyant, delighted, happy aspect of faith. Because you can see the future and you know someday you're going to be free from sin. And someday you're going to be in heaven. You're going to be in a resurrection body and it's just delightful. But then we got that hard negative side where it's like, yeah, but look at yourself now. How are you? How do you look? I have this thing called indwelling sin. The very thing I hate, I do. And Paul says, as it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The, the mirror of the word faith shows you your indwelling sin. And that's essential to sanctification. It's essential. Not everyone's sanctification runs along the same course. Some of us have different sin patterns. So if you don't know what you're doing wrong, the ways that you're sinning, how can you grow? But if the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, shows you your sin, you'll be convicted and you'll grow. And, the, and that spiritual vision, that's faith, you're going to see yourself truly as, as a sinner. In specific ways. Not just, you know, oh yeah, I know, I'm, I'm not perfect. No, no, no. Holy Spirit's not doing general kind of hazy. Yeah, you're not perfect. No, he's getting very specific. The way that you deal with your wife at times like this, that is unloving. You need to change. The way you are dealing with your money right now is worldly. You're not giving sacrificially. You need to change. You too often shrink back from evangelism because of fear of man. You need to change. I mean, that's what the Spirit's doing. He's helping us grow. Now, you would say, well, how much does he have to show me? A lot. <laughs> Why didn't he show it to you all at once when you were converted? Why not? Why didn't he say, okay, I want to show you the journey, what it's going to look like in terms of your indwelling sin and how much journey you yet to have. Why didn't he show it all? Like, sit down, I want the whole truth. 
Really? Why don't he show you the whole thing right at the beginning? You'd be overwhelmed and you'd want to die on the spot. Maybe you would die. You're like heart failure. So instead, what does he do? He pays out conviction a little at a time, a little at a time, just but generally knowing you have indwelling sin and you just need to grow. And so be humble. Put sin to death. Grow. Run this race with endurance. That's what we're talking about. But that's by faith you see it. It's the eyesight of the soul. You're seeing not just the glories of God and His beauty and all that, but you're seeing your own inner corruption. So fourth bullet is the reliance on Christ as all-sufficient Savior, provider, shields, lots of other titles I could put in here. Basically, the more you grow, the more you will rely on Jesus. You're a Christ-reliant person. The more mature you are, the more you will know that you are a branch and He's the vine. And apart from Him, you can do nothing. You're actually going to grow in more and more reliance on Christ, not less and less. Not like, Jesus, I got this one. I'm sure you have other people to help, like more immature people than me. Just go ahead. You're not going to say anything like that at all. You're going to say, unless the Lord helps me, I will fail today. Oh, Lord, be with me. Help me to abide in you, Jesus. Help me to draw close to you. If I face that same set of temptations again, I'll, I'll fall in sin. I've got to have your help. So more and more and more and more reliance on Jesus, not less and less. That's by faith. You, you see that Jesus is your Savior and you need help. And then finally, reception of spiritual guidance. This is for some of my brothers that commented on the book, the area that they got most nervous about. It's like, like an inner voice told me what to do. Yeah? Like that, definitely. But it's not like in kind of a weird, prophetic, charismatic way. It's what I would call it this way. I would call it in, indwelling or inner guidance from the Spirit of God that enables you to take the universal principles of the Word of God that are written for all the brothers and sisters in Christ in every generation, whatever, and makes them applicable to your life. There's nothing in any of the 66 books of the Bible that tells you what woman to marry or what your spiritual gifts are, or where you should serve the Lord, or what mission trip you should or shouldn't go on. It, there's nothing there specifically for you. There's just sufficient principles of truth by which you can make what we call wise decisions. Now, if you think about it, look in James chapter 1. Don't tune in, turn there, but it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he should believe and not doubt. So it's linked to faith. You're asking God, oh God, I don't know what to do. We've got this financial situation. We've got this condition. We've got this. We don't, I, need, I don't know what to do. Would you please, what's the word? Guide me. Can you really tell me that that's not an appropriate prayer for a Christian? We need that kind of guidance. Now obviously it's dangerous and it's lower than the word of God in clarity, but you need it. You need to know what to do. So therefore, I can say I really believe when I was finishing my PhD work at Southern and the search committee at FBC Durham called me to be senior pastor, to come preach in view of a call and all that. And I got down on my knees and the time had come for a decision. And I said, Lord, I need to know whether I'm going to Durham or not for that. Yes or no. I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, you've got to have an answer. Should I accept their invitation to come and preach in view of a call? If you really believe that the Lord leads you, then you go through really rough times for a couple of years. You don't doubt. You say, I just believe the Lord led me here. Now, I use that kind of language all the time. I don't say, God led me here. 
I say, I believe the Lord led me here because that's the way I assent that that inner guidance is lower than the written word of God. But I still follow it. And so do you. So that you can make wise decisions in your life. And what I'm saying is the more mature you are, the more that's going to happen. You just know what God wants you to do. You just have a sense of that. George Mueller knew that God called him to care for, uh, for uh, orphans. And then details, he knew that he called him to do this on this day or that. I mean, he just knew. He was just guided by the Lord. So the more mature you are, you'll have a sense of that. All right, third box, character. Uh, biblical biblical um, synonym for that is heart. Or you could say the inner nature, the inner man. Character, heart. So it's an internal nature conformed to Christ, your heart. That I break into five bubbles leading to a kind of harmonizing bubble, if you can see them there. First, we start with affection. Here I'm leaning on Jonathan Edwards' treatise on religious affections. But that's simply what you love and what you hate. All right? So, a spiritually mature man or woman has a heart conformed to Christ to the end that he or she loves what Christ loves and hates what Christ hates. And to a greater or less degree, depending on the thing itself. We have in our, in our hearts the ability not only to know and understand something, but to be attracted to that thing or repulsed from it to a greater or less degree. Okay, that's what Edwards gave us in Treatise on Religious Affections. I've always thought of it like a magnet. And I, I, I'm just very geeky in my book. There's a number line of affections. That's like as geeky as it gets. I mean, what in the world, pastor? Come on. So like the zero is perfect indifference. And the plus is like leading to love. And the minus is dislike leading to hatred. And then everything you know in your life is somewhere on that affection, number line of affection. And at conversion, many things change instantly. Things you used to hate, you now love. Like Bible reading, for example, or Jesus himself. And things you used to love, you now hate because you recognize that they're assassinating your soul and you want them out. So you used to love drinking or smoking or drugs or you know, illicit sex or whatever, and now you hate it. You realize these things are the very things that are destroying you. You want them gone. But the thing is, it's dynamic. Okay. So just on the number line of affection, let's say positive is what you love. What should be the furthest to the right on that? The thing that you love the most. Christ or God, the triune God, doesn't matter how you put it, but yes, Father, Son, and Spirit, yes. What would you call something that's beyond that that you love more than God? An idol, by definition. It's anything that you put affection on in your heart greater than God. And you're like, well, I have some idolatrous days. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. It's dynamic. And is it possible to love Christ more and more and more? Is it possible to love the brothers in Christ more and more? Actually, we're actually commanded to love more and more. So we're supposed to. Conversely, are there some things we're supposed to hate? Not be neutral about, I mean hate. Yeah, wickedness. Hebrews 1, 8 says of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So we can't just be positive. Pastor, I just want to be positive. I'm going to be a positive person all the time. It's like, well, you have to be negative if you're going to be healthy. We have to hate sin. We have to be at war with it. We have to murder it, kill it. We have to hate temptation. We're going to kill them. So there's a violence to the Christian life, right? We're going to hate like Jesus and we're going to love like Jesus. That's the thing. So that's affection. That's the topmost thing. What you love and what you hate. 
From that, it has uh, des- desires, what you seek. So that's something you love, but you don't have yet. Do so you go after it, your desires? So the Christian life is one of desires or things you yearn for that you don't have. And you go after those things. And they feed together. They're very closely related. What you love but don't yet have, that's what you set your heart on, what you desire. You can use different words like ambition. Paul says it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ wasn't named so I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. Or whether we're in the body or out of the body, we make it our ambition to please him. So it's an ambition. I want these things. There's just some things I want in my life. You know, John Piper did his whole ministry around this, desiring God. It's like, well, I thought we already have God. We do, but we want Him more. We want to experience Him more. We want to please Him more. So there's desires. So a Christian life, a healthy Christian life, is a life of desire. And then thirdly, the will. So this is really <laughs> controversial. People always come to me, it's like, Pastor, do you believe in free will? Like, I always answer with a question. Because I'm kind of tricky and sly that way. It's just kind of how I am. I ask them, free from what? You tell me free from what, I'll tell you whether I believe in it or not. All right, let's take it this way. Free from God's interference. No, I don't believe in that. I wouldn't call it interference. I would say God has the right to retool my will. And thank God he did. Thank God he did. But here's the thing. This is how he does it. He changes the will by changing the stuff above the will on my chart. By getting you to love what you used to hate and hate what you used to love, you're going to will differently. I think what Satan's good at doing is lying and deceiving. He's able, I mean, the will is just the servant of the heart, that's all. You're going to choose what you love and you're going to reject what you hate. Let's talk about food. For me, I hate seafood of any type. Now, I know you're, some of you are furrowing your brows. You're like, Jesus likes seafood? I mean, he cooked fish in his resurrection body. He ate fish in his resurrection body. He both cooked and ate fish. What's wrong with you? I don't know. And even worse, I was a missionary for two years in Japan. What in the world? We were eating fish all the time. That's right, but I didn't like it. <laughs> and I don't know what you can do about it. How can you? Seriously, and that's where I don't believe in the freedom of the will. Do we have the ability? Can the will go above the affection? And as that act of your will, you can choose to love what you used to hate and hate what you used to love. I say no. Any of you like really into college sports, like college basketball, all right? You know, in this region, it's unbelievable the passions for college basketball and and specifically two programs in particular that just seem to hate each other. I mean, they hate each other. Duke and Carolina fans, that's just it. There's one or two percent that cares about basketball. It says, I could root for either one. They are weird, and you know, very few people are like that. But here's the thing. Let's say you're a fanatical Carolina fan or a fanatical Duke fan or here in Raleigh, a fanatical State fan. My son went to State. All right. And you're playing your arch rival. Can you, as an act of your will, genuinely love the other team? Come on, you know you can't. <laughs> it can't be done. I can act like it. I can be a hypocrite. I actually did that once. Somebody got me a ticket and I had to stand surrounded by fans from the opposite school and I had to act out of friendship like I was rooting for that team. That was hard to do. I have never felt so much like a hypocrite in all my life. What an actor. I will not tell you which school and all that. I'm not doing that. But the fact is you can't, as an act of your will, choose to love. It goes the other direction. You love what you love, you hate what you hate, and then you make choices accordingly. It's just that simple. So the will is a servant of the heart. 
So how does your heart change? How do you love differently? You can't. You can't choose to love differently. But that's something God can do to your heart. If you as a humble spiritual beggar say, I know I don't love you like I should. Would you please transform my heart? Would you please take away the hardness and give me a heart of affection? And then give me, help me to make choices that are wise, lined up with that, etc. Now, there's deeper issues of the will, like when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. There's a lot more we can talk about. It's complex, but that's how I see it. Fundamentally, like with food, if your favorite meal, like a lot of guys like steak and potatoes and salad and stuff like that, let's say that's it. You've got maybe your own version of your favorite meal is presented next to your absolute least favorite meal. What was that? Seafood, right. Or you could even go more disgusting, like a plate of reeking dung. Satan has the ability to deceive us so that that which is most attractive and beautiful and delightful can look like dung, and that which is most repulsive in God's sight can look very appealing and attractive. He's very good at this. I mean, he's been doing it. You know what I'm talking about. What the Lord does is he heals our hearts so that we see things truly. You see it as it really is. Let me give an example. Think about Lazarus' resurrection, right? We could call it resuscitation because he wasn't resurrected into a resurrection body, but he came alive again. Remember how Jesus said, roll the stone back, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And when he cried out, Lazarus, come forth, instantly a principle of life came into him. He had no power over that, just happened he became alive but there is hanging in the air a commandment from christ maybe you missed that but there was a commandment right lazarus come forth well now he's got a decision to make right i can stay in this tomb with my dead ancestors wrapped up in this sheet or i can come out in the sunshine and be with my friend and we can have a party celebrating my resurrection death life death life i think i think i'm going to come out now here's the thing if you had a million souls in that situation how many of them are going to choose life all of them that's what i would call irresistible grace or effectual grace basically it's just so obvious from an eternal point of view that we should choose christ and virtue and goodness and all that it's so obvious and i'm telling you it's going to be obvious on judgment day but right now it's not so obvious satan's just good at that And so Jesus is able to make spiritual choices really clear and more and more clear. Like, remember that parable of the the, uh, blind man that Jesus healed in stages? Remember that? It's kind of an interesting one. It's only in, I think, the Gospel of Mark. Um, And he uh, healed this blind man. He said, what do you see? Well, I see men like trees walking around. Remember that? And then he touched him a second time, and he could see everything clearly. That's a bit of a head scratcher, don't you think? What what would make us like wonder about that? What's odd about that? That's not where I'm going, but that's an interesting point. I love that. That's it's not where I think. Right. Seemed like a misfire. You know, it seemed like, but you know, it isn't. So there is definitely an intentionality to the two stages. Now, I told you that the healing of the man born blind, different case. But the healing of the man born blind is a parable of Jesus' therapeutic work of salvation on our souls. I think, frankly, I don't know this for sure, but I think the stages of healing is teaching us that we're going to get our salvation in stages too. And so there's going to be a time in which we're going to see things but not clearly. 
Paul even says this. Now we see as in a mirror dimly, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Do we see clearly all spiritual things now? Friend, you do not. Is it possible to see some spiritual things a little more clearly as time goes on? Absolutely. That's what good teaching will do. Maybe even today, this morning, you're seeing sanctification a little more clearly as we go on. There's just learning and growing. It's like, wow, I get it. I see some things I didn't see before, right? So Jesus intends to give us our salvation in stages. First justification, then sanctification, then glorification when we'll see everything clearly. And so we're going to get it in stages, little by little. And so that's what's happening in the, in the heart. Then from that comes your thoughts. Now you're like, what's the difference between knowledge the first box, and then thought. Well, they're obviously closely related, but here I'm talking about your thought life. And I could go beyond that to your demeanor or your attitude, like Christian contentment. I'm teaching a class on Christian contentment on Sunday mornings. And so that's your thought life, you know, your, and combined with the last one, which is your emotions. But you've got your thoughts. What do you think about? Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, lovely, admirable. If anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Or he says in another place, we have the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also in Jesus. That kind of thing. It's your thought life. Your thought life. So do you have pure thoughts or corrupted thoughts? Do you have a, a humble, servant-like attitude or mind? Are you like-minded with other brothers and sisters in Christ? There's a lot about the mind there. So it just has to do with your thinking patterns, sanctification. And then finally, emotions. We are emotional beings. One simple command, here's a good one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Right? Or another one, which I think is really vital in, in Romans 12, 14, I think it is. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Isn't that talking about emotions? So let's say you've got a very good friend and he has just found out that his wife and one of his kids has died in a car accident. And you drive over there to be with your friend. That's going to be a hard ministry. What should you do in that situation? Grief. Should you show it? Or should you be stoic? You know, like the God of the Stoics. They had no emotion. We're going to be strong here. We're going to be strong for everybody. It's like absolutely wrong. You're going to go weep. You're going to put an arm around him and weep. Conversely, let's say, here's this is a hard one. Let's say that you're a single woman and all you want is to be married. And your roommate from college just got engaged. And she calls and tells you the good news. And you get to drive over there and celebrate with her though your heart's breaking because you're 25 now or 26 and you wonder if you're ever going to get married. But what are you commanded to do from that verse? Rejoice. <laughs> oh, Jesus, help me. <laughs> I'm not feeling joy right now. Or you think about a childless couple and they're going through all kinds of tests and fertility stuff and, and they're surrounded by babies being born all the time. And they just, hey, we just found out we're expecting or, or our child was born and it's like, come and celebrate with us hard to do but we're called on to have an emotional life jesus was very emotional he's a very can you can, give me examples of jesus's emotions he's wept there's times for weeping any others celebrating the kingdom rejoicing through the holy spirit when this was it the 70 came back 72 i forget the number came back having preached the gospel he just celebrated he's filled with joy very emotional money changers i'm seeing anger there but it was a cold, patient anger as he's making that whip. I guess he knew how to braid, all right? 
So there's that braiding going on. But it, that's just a picture of the, of the slow anger of God. But when it comes, it comes, and nothing will stop it. So we see all of that. Here's the thing. Our emotional life is, is messed up. It's defective. Mostly because our thought life and the things that are ahead of it are defective. Also because we lack information. There are just some things we don't know. We're basically ever reacting to perception of truth, not to truth itself. A very good example of this in a movie that I watched a few years ago called We Are Marshall. And it was about the um, uh, Marshall football team that all of it died in the, in the plane crash. Well, it turned out in the movie, this is interesting, um, one of the assistant coaches was making a recruiting trip after the game and didn't get on the plane. Called his wife to say, hey, I'm not going to be on the plane. I'm going to do some recruiting. Didn't get her. This is before answering machines. So he called a neighbor lady and said, please tell my wife I'm not going to be on the plane. I'm going to be late. I'm going to be a couple of days. She forgot to tell the wife. The wife hears about the plane crash, no survivors. Assumes her husband, like normal, was on the plane. And what is her emotional reaction? Grief. Is it appropriate? Yes, based on her knowledge of the truth. Was it true, though? No. So frankly, the more you know the truth, the more your emotions are going to be brought into line with God's emotions. Good or bad, you're going to rejoice with what God rejoices over and mourn with what God mourns over, and your, your emotions, your emotional life will be more and more conformed to Christ based on the things that precede, knowledge and faith. All right? So you'll have a healthier and healthier emotional life. So, I mean, that's an example of how we react to what we think is true, and we can be easily deceived. So our emotions are whacked out all the time. But should we be emotionless? No, we need to have healthy emotions. So that's the inner heart. You see it? You've got affection. You've got desire, will, thought life, and emotion. All of that feeds in what I call virtues, which are just snapshots of proper behavior. I've given examples. Like when you go with your friend and uh, go to see your friend and his wife and child has died, there is a virtue that that situation calls for. This is what we call situational virtues. And you're going to be in so many different situations in your Christian life. And the more mature you are, the more, the more Christ-like and appropriate you'll be in every situation. Can you see what now why I call this infinite journey? You're going to be on this the rest of your life. How can I be like Jesus in any and every situation? But isn't that what we're called to? Conformity to Christ. So all of those things feed into what we call the fruit of the Spirit or different virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Just different virtue states that you are to be in. The final is action. And I'll go through this quickly and we'll take a break. Action I define as external lifestyle of habitual obedience. Okay? Habitual obedience. Habit is something that you do again and again and again so that they're ingrained patterns of life, like practicing free throws or practicing a musical instrument. You just, the more you do it, the, the more that you, uh, you, you get better at it. And that's good or bad. You can have good habits or bad habits. So what the Lord wants us to do is, as we used to present our bodies in slavery to unrighteousness and ever-increasing wickedness, in the same kind of pattern now, we're going to do the opposite thing. We're going to present our bodies to God and to ever-increasing holiness, leading to sanctification holiness, it says. Romans 6.19. So that's the pattern of sanctification. We're going to more and more obey. Now here's the thing, habitual obedience. Going back to the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything. I would say this, there is not a single thing that you will ever do pleasing to God that he didn't first command you to do. 
I mean that in every categorical area of your life. Everything that God wants you to do, He has told you to do. In other words, what I'm saying is God isn't looking for freelancers. He's not like on His throne saying, I don't know, surprise me, do something good. And you're saying, now wait a minute, you're saying we're under the law. No, we're not under the law in terms of our, the establishment of our relationship with God. No. But we're under the law in terms of, God, what is a good life? How should I then live? What is a good marriage? What does it mean to be a good father? Well, Ephesians will tell you and Colossians will tell you and some other things. So there are commands. Everything is, you're covered in the commands of God. You know, the two great commands, love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. I, I just think it's so funny. We're free from the law. Really, we're free from needing to love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't need to do that now? That makes no sense. No, we're freed to the law now. Freed from the law's condemning power will not condemn us and send us to hell, though it could do so. But Jesus paid the price for that. Now we are freed back to the law by the Spirit to fulfill it and to walk in its wise principles. So now we're called on to habitual obedience. First and foremost, the presentation of the body as a living sacrifice. Here I am. I'm yours to serve. I will do with my hands and my mouth and my feet, my body, everything you want me to do. I'm going to present my body to you as a living sacrifice. Then there's negative sanctification, some things you must not do. Key things that you must not do in the Christian life. They're forbidden. I organize those in my book into four areas of purity. Sexual purity, speech purity, relationship purity. By that I mean freedom from bitterness, unforgiveness, things like that. And then purity and lawful pleasures, which is huge for us Americans. Lawful pleasures are good things that God's given, but we become addicted to them and overindulge and don't know when to say no. So those freedom from overindulgence, those four areas are negative sanctification, purity. And then I organize positive commands in the seven main headings. I don't go into great detail because that's where Christian living books thrive in those categories, such as family life, stewardship, work, you know, spiritual gift ministry, evangelism, which links to the external journey, etc. those seven areas. So that, dear friends, is an overview of what a mature Christian man or woman is. Let me read the list of statements and then we'll, we'll take a break. I gave a, a list and it's in the handout, but I'll, I'll just go ahead. Not the handout, but it's in the PDF you'll get. So um, maturing Christians develop knowledge, a wide-ranging and deep knowledge of the Bible. They just know the Bible well. Mature Christians have a wealth of rich spiritual experiences. That's the first box. Secondly, maturing Christians develop a strong sense of the reality of invisible spiritual truths, past, present, and future. Maturing Christians develop a vibrant hope in a bright future based on the promises of God. Maturing Christians develop a deep and detailed conviction of personal sin in their lives. They're actually easy to convict of sin. They're not prideful. They know and they want more information about the sin that's in their lives. Maturing Christians develop a firm and consistent reliance on Christ more and more. And maturing Christians develop a consistent sense of practical wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit. Secondly, or thirdly, sorry, maturing Christians develop a heart that loves what Christ loves and hates what Christ hates. Maturing Christians develop an array of passionate, godly desires that direct their whole lives. They're passionate people. They're filled with desires. And those desires dominate their lives. Godly desires. They also have a will that is consistently submissive to the will of God in Christ, saying effectively, not my will, but yours be done. A thought life that's pure and excellent. Maturing Christians develop a healthy emotional life patterned after Christ. 
and maturing Christians are characterized moment by moment by the right virtues that that complex situation calls for. And you will live out in wisdom all the things that is that that situation calls for. Finally, action. A maturing, maturing Christian develops a habit of consistently, constantly, sorry, presenting the body to God in holy obedience. And from that, a lifestyle that's pure from indwelling sin more and more. Never perfectly, but more and more pure. A consistent habit of personal and corporate worship. Um, a life of daily habits in prayer and Bible intake. That's your quiet time. A pattern of biblical faithfulness in marriage and parenting if you are married and have children to parent. A habit of blessing other Christians with your spiritual gift ministry and with general ministries called on by all, uh, for all Christians. And a regular habit of bold witnessing to lost people and involvement in unreached people group missions. And a track record of faithful stewardship of money and time and energy for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And a habit of diligent labor, hard work for the glory of God. Not a sluggard, but somebody who works hard in the areas assigned to him. Now that's it. That's the whole thing. Now when you look at that, you're like, oh my goodness. I thought I was doing well. I look at this and I'm like, oh, but I can't look at any of these statements and throw them out. I really can't. I can't say, well, I'm not going to work on that right now. I'm not. It's like, oh, God, do all of this in my life. So that's the overview, the big map, uh, et cetera. Why don't we take a break and you guys are going to have some time for discussion. Then we'll come back and I'll zero in on some things.